good morning. Uh, welcome again to St. Paul's. Whether you're joining us online today or in person, whether you're curious, critical, or committed, we are glad you're here. Now, when you're discouraged, what do you do? Reach for the rosé or punch a wall? A long run or a short shopping spree? St. Paul, a famous early Christian writer, didn't prescribe any of those things to the earliest Christians when they were discouraged. No wine or workouts for them. No? His response? The end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. And I'll admit it's not exactly what I would share with one of our daughters if they'd done badly on an exam or what I might counsel one of you if you were passed over for promotion or going through a breakup. But we're in the last few weeks of our E100 preaching series, looking at the essential 100 passages from the Bible as we try to figure out what God is doing in our lives today. We've recently been reading how the earliest Jesus movement, the church, rapidly grew after the resurrection of Jesus. And our reading from 1 Thessalonians that Dan read this morning is generally agreed by historians to be the earliest Christian piece of writing that we have, written by Paul about 15 years after Jesus' resurrection to a small gathering of Jesus' followers who lived in Thessalonica, a Greek port city, think Miami. And they were struggling because members of their community had begun to die. And they were now unsure of what their future plans should be. Don't worry, says Paul. The end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's advice to those earliest Christians and see what it might mean for us. Some 2,000 years later, but still with our own personal discouragements and the reality of climate change, the threat of nuclear war once more. Whether we've been learning how to follow Jesus for several years, or you're new and you're asking questions. Now right off the bat, you may uh, now be nervous because you've realized you've shown up at church when we're focusing on the end of the world. Isn't that what fundamentalist Christians focus on? Y2K being the end of time, the rapture happening when you're at the LCBO when you get left behind. I know that's what you worry about. And while there certainly has been uh, irresponsible teaching around this topic, and you may have grown up with some, there are 318 references to Jesus' second coming at the end of time in the New Testament. Roughly one out of Every 13 verses mentions it, and nearly every ethical command of our Lord is linked to it. So the doctrine of the second coming is not some embarrassing, uneducated second cousin at the Christian party. There's a reason that this passage from Thessalonians is included in the E100. So what's going on? You might want to keep the passage open on your phone. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Or the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 204 at the back, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, before Jesus died, he had told his closest followers that he would be returning one day, the second coming, with the first coming being Christmas. 
And taking Jesus at his word, those earliest Christians, they didn't make any long-range plans. And as the years went on, those first followers began to die. And the only reason that we now have any historical record of the New Testament at all is because someone finally worked up the nerve to say, you know what? The eyewitnesses are dying off. We really should get all these uh, records about Jesus down on paper. Jesus's mother Mary has now almost certainly died, and the Roman Emperor Titus is about to destroy Jerusalem in roughly a decade. All to say, Paul was writing to people who desperately wanted to know whether Jesus's delayed return was in the fine print of the strategic plan or whether he was simply missing in action. And so Paul responds, the end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. Now his encouragement consists mainly of two important points, and this is the first. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't need to grieve death the way other people do. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Greco-Roman culture at the time, uh, while varied in its beliefs on the afterlife, uh, not only balked at the bodily resurrection from the dead, right, like the physical resurrection, but also lacked hope for any kind of meaningful reunion once a friend or a family member died. And if this life is all there is, then death produces considerable grief. Not so for the members of the Jesus movement, says Paul. This doesn't mean we don't grieve. Jesus himself wept publicly when his friend Lazarus died. But let's be clear, we are grieving for ourselves. I had a little brother named Peter. He died when he was one. And I remember the day of his funeral very well. My father said to me, Jenny Wren, that was his nickname for me, Jenny Wren, today we're not grieving for Peter. He's in paradise. We're grieving for ourselves. And if we believe that Jesus died and God raised him from the dead, and I realize that the jury may be out on that uh, for those of you spiritually searching, but the Thessalonian Christians were convinced, as some of them may have actually seen the risen Jesus. But if you do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you can also believe that your loved ones who have hitched their wagon to the resurrection of Jesus will be caught up in Jesus' resurrection life. Easter Sunday is not a one-time event, says Paul. It's a foretaste, it's a down payment on a future reality that we can fantastically look forward to. So grieve, but don't grieve without hope. Second, Jesus is coming back, but when? That's going to be a surprise. Chapter 5, verse 2. Now, brothers and sisters, 
about times and dates. We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul here is writing to Christians who may have known Jesus in his earthly life, and they would well remember him saying that no one will know when he's going to return. His return will be like a thief in the night. Don't forget, Paul said, God doesn't use the same calendar that we do with all the same alerts and alarms. Do you really think a thief is going to text you to find out when the right time is to break in? Will Monday work? Jesus will not come back on a published schedule. He will come like a thief in the night, padding silently around in the dark. And if you've ever experienced this or even had your wallet stolen at a club, then you know what a troubling image this can be. The question is, what does this thief, what does this thief want to take? Briefly, two things that this thief Jesus wants to take from us so we can receive something else. First, this thief wants to take the bitterness of unforgiveness and judgment. You see, holding on to the return of Jesus at the end of time, it gives us power to forgive. When someone wrongs us, we want them to be punished. We want justice to be done. And we're quick to jump into that judgment seat and encourage God to mete out justice just the way we think is appropriate. Problem is, we're not big enough for that seat. It's like the ring in the Lord of the Rings. Like that ring, judgment, it twists us. It makes us think the worst of other people and allows us to paint large groups of people with negative stereotypes. You know, those people. American writer J.D. Greer puts it like this. Apart from the doctrine of the second coming, we have no power to keep ourselves from running to that judgment seat only by knowing that Jesus is coming back and his return means true justice, can I be content to stay off it. I can endure injustice for the time being because he'll set all things right. This does not mean we become doormats and don't fight against prejudice or fight against repression. But what it does mean is the pains of daily life, and we all have them, they don't have to consume us. Secondly, this thief, he wants to take away despair in times of suffering, and we all have it, and give us hope in its place. We're told in this passage that Jesus will return in clouds and that believers will be caught up in him, with him. And it's actually a significant detail because it points us back to the Old Testament to when God led the Israelites out of Egypt in a cloud and then gave the law to Moses in a cloud. This glory cloud, the Shekinah of God, is always a sign of God being with God's people, of the beginning of the end, of the pain and suffering that marks human existence. The return of Jesus in clouds is good news for people whose lives have bad news in it. If you've got cancer, if you're single and you don't want to be, 
if your job just drains life out of you, then Jesus is saying, the end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. The good old days, they're always ahead of us. Holy Communion, what our children and youth are going to join us now to experience, our family meal, Holy Communion, is a tangible earthly reminder of the heavenly banquet that the risen King Jesus is setting the table for at the end of time. Take and eat, because the end of the world is coming, and we're invited to one hell of a party. Thanks be to God. Amen.